We're here to talk with professional, usually Hollywood, creatives about their inner world, their journey, tools they've used to get to a better place in their life, what they're currently bumping up against, what their challenges are, and how they're learning to overcome them, and exploring the world of healing and where that meets Hollywood. So today I get to interview my dad, and he has so many fascinating stories to mine that I really wanted to turn this into a 10-part series, but for now, it's in two parts. Robert Baruch is a mindfulness teacher. He's taught at Boston University, Harvard, University of New Hampshire, and University of Vermont. In 2019, he completed a two-year mindfulness meditation teacher training program with Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock, given through UC Berkeley. For the last three years, Robert has been teaching mindfulness courses online and in his hometown of Litchfield, Connecticut, with in-person classes. After a successful 35-year career in the movie industry, he is turning his focus to his longtime passion of teaching mindfulness. He is a founding partner of the Center for Mindful Business, where they are committed to bringing mindfulness into businesses and business to mindfulness teachers. Robert enjoys teaching and coaching individuals as well as large groups in mindfulness. So what I wanted to ask you is going from a quote-unquote normal childhood to deciding to join an ashram, a Sikh yoga ashram. What were you thinking? (laughs) (laughs) now we have about like a four-year transition from what you're saying a normal childhood which you know childhood or growing up in a suburb of new york city new rochelle and one of the steps that led me to join an ashram a spiritual life was doing psychedelic drugs in college you know it opened up my mind and even though it was recreational we just looked at as having fun it also allowed me to see that there's there are different ways of looking at this world that I didn't quite see going kind of my straight and narrow path mm-hmm. at age 18, 19. Doing psychedelics opened up my mind that, wow, there are different ways. And we're here on this planet spinning around and what's really going on? That there is another world and it was called the world of consciousness. Mm. And I had just been aware of the world of sex, drugs, and rock and roll and getting ahead. And am I going to make money? And what am I going to do with my life? I literally, after two years, I dropped out of college and I traveled around Europe with my brother for four months, hitchhiking around Europe. And that also expanded my awareness that there are other ways of living in this world. You know, from Europe to the Middle East to we were in Israel for three weeks We we literally stayed on an island in Greece for almost a month, just existing on the island, on the beach on this island, and not doing anything. That also started to create a a new awareness. By the time I came back and I went to school in New Hampshire, and I started reading books by people like Baba Ramdas and Mahatma Gandhi and Autobiography of a Yogi. These were interesting to me. And... I'm going, wow, there's this whole spiritual life. At the same time, I saw a notice for a yoga class at the university where I was. I started going to yoga class, as did some of the people that I was living with. We were kind of living as a In New Hampshire? New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. 
We started, we went to yoga class, we started meditating. And after doing that for, I don't know how long, maybe a year, the teacher who was teaching the yoga class, he was a Sikh and he was part of this organization called 3HO, teaching Kundalini yoga. He was an American Sikh. He asked us if we wanted to live together in a house. It's called an ashram because you're studying spirituality. I remember driving from the house we were living out in the country in New Hampshire, driving into school one day, thinking, what else is more important to me? What else would I rather be doing than becoming more conscious and than gaining spiritual consciousness, cosmic consciousness? It just seemed like that that was the most important thing to me at that time. Can I become more aware? Can I become enlightened? And I thought, I want to be enlightened. So I'm going to join the ashram. And that's how it all started. I started teaching yoga probably in 1974. And I've been teaching some form of yoga or meditation for the last 45 years. I think Mm -hmm. It all began with a a real desire to become enlightened. Yeah. I just happened. A lot of people were moving into ashrams. People were wearing orange clothes. If you were with Rajneesh or depending on who you were with, I happened to have been, uh, you know, the teacher was Yogi Bhajan. He was a Sikh. We put on turbans, woke up for sadhana every morning at 3.30. What's sadhana? That was our, sadhana is your spiritual practice. We would meet in the meditation room at four o'clock in the morning and we would do one hour of yoga one hour of meditating, and then a half hour of chanting, singing, reading from scriptures. So 5 a.m., you're meditating until 6 a.m. Yeah. Every day. Were you not just sleeping, sitting up? (laughs) Some days I fell asleep. But for the most part, you got to remember, we did an hour of yoga first, breath of fire, very active yogic practice. After that, I was pretty much awake. Also, before we even got over to the sadhana room, meditation room, we would take an ice cold shower. Well, that's really popular again. I just I, did a whole episode about that. Huh, I've heard that people are doing ice baths. And oh, yeah. Water. It's so good for you. And that will wake you up. And I was living in Boston at the time, and it is cold. Cold water up there. Yeah, and not only does it wake you up, as you probably know, but it actually regulates your nervous system for the entire day. Mm. It takes you out of your fight or flight response. Yeah, I mean, if you can stand afterwards, it really just you know just engages you and pumps you up and brings blood to the surface of your skin. You know, your whole body is saying, "Whoa." Wake up. Yeah, there's a whole episode I just did with Neil Jackson about this. He's real into the science of it. But that's so interesting. So you've really woken up with the cold shower. Then you're doing yoga, breath of fire, and then you're meditating. I'm just curious, like, how do you meditate for a whole hour is it it because it wasn't like guided meditation, was it? It was not silent meditation. This was mantra meditation. Okay. Most of the time, as a group, maybe 40, 50 of us in a room chanting, Sata Nama, Sata Nama. So that energy was there. If I had to sit in silence doing a silent meditation for an hour at that hour in the morning, I probably would have dozed off a lot. Yeah. More. So the vibration of everyone chanting together, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. 
And some of the uh, meditations not only had a, a mantra, but also had a mudra, which is your fingers, and had a breathing technique. Mm. They might inhale and they go, Ip! and then, you know, you're using your navel point, you're using different parts of your body throughout the meditation. So it's a, it's a whole thing. That's involved. And this is all based on the structures and disciplines from India. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So you guys were copying what they were doing in India, in their ashrams. The teachers, yeah, came from India. That were, you know, and the Sikhs uh, started in India. The point of this, these routines, follow this structure and you will be the enlightened beings. You will be connected to everything. Yeah. Did you feel that way? Was it working? Well, no, it wasn't working. Eventually... I left the ashram because I didn't feel it was working. But for seven years, you must have been feeling good. Something was working. Yeah. No, I I got a lot out of doing sadhana, meditating, certainly doing yoga. To this day, I still have a yoga practice. So yes, I, I felt like I was getting a lot out of the yoga practice, a lot out of meditating. There was a lot of other structure to the ashram, to ashram life that wasn't working for me. Like too dogmatic. Too dogmatic. And I do yoga almost every day, but I do yoga at about 8.30 in the morning. I don't wake up at 3.30 anymore. Yeah. It, it, was, it was difficult to have, uh, you know, I want to say a normal life, but to have a life that um, other people could relate to me besides just the ashram folks. Yeah, I see that it was taking up all your time, obviously, and your bandwidth, but also isolating in the sense that no one else was doing that intense of a structure. I mean, I got a lot out of it. And I carry a lot from that time today. You know? Yeah, I feel like so much of your ability to be someone that people want to be around and, and someone that people want to do business with probably came from that time. I mean, it certainly helped in many ways as far as discipline and um, understanding and creating a practice that, that I could do throughout my life. Even now, you know, yoga and meditating every day, it doesn't seem like such a hard discipline because what I did for seven years, that was a discipline. This seems, you know, natural. It was like the boot camp that gave you the foundation and the discipline that you were able to like integrate all of that learning and that practice. And that's like solidified into your ability to like turn it into your own thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I always, you know, there's certain parts of the ashram that I loved. I always loved teaching and I can do that today. Ashram life, believe it or not, introduced me to business. Mm -hmm. I ended up running the ashram businesses. I had never been a businessman and the teacher of the ashram saw that in me and thought I would be good at running a business. And we had stores back then in Harvard Square. And he thought I would be a good person to manage these businesses. And he was right. I took to a duck to water. I loved running the businesses. And, you know, it served me well throughout my life, throughout my career, uh, when I was in the film business. Uh, I did well and I, I enjoyed it. It came naturally to me running businesses. So they taught you how to be a teacher, and they also taught you how to be a business person. Well, they gave me the opportunity to be a business person. 
They gave me the opportunity to run stores, figure out marketing. So how did you know all of it? You just taught yourself? Figured it out. I mean, you just look around, you look at models. Who are the successful stores in Harvard Square? What were they doing? How come they were successful and the other guys weren't? You know, marketing just, I loved it. I loved figuring out what, you know, I was running a footwear store, stores actually, uh, what worked. We, we were the biggest uh, sellers, retailers of Birkenstock sandals. So I knew this worked. Birkenstock sandals in Harvard Square, that worked. That made money. So where do you go from there? Mm-hmm. You, you expand it out. People want comfort shoes. What else is comfortable? What's comfortable in a boot? What's comfortable in a shoe? I figured it out. How do you market it? We were on the corner of uh, Mass Ave and Church Street in Harvard Square, one of the most highly trafficked areas in the country. And I had windows in Harvard Square. So what what should I do? I should I should make these windows so attractive that people are going to stop and look. And that's what we did. We put movement into our windows. I had I had little motors that had shoes flying through the window. People stopped and looked, and then they came in. What gave you this inspiration? Did you see someone else do a window like that, or you just came up with it? I would walk around, whether it was Harvard Square or downtown Boston, and look at what windows attracted me. Right. What had people stopping and looking. And then you guys did ads, too. Yeah, we did advertising. I was looking at, you know, what what makes a powerful ad? What am I stopping and looking at as I flip through a paper? And, you know, it's interesting because it it served me well when I was running. um, I was just thinking that. Home entertainment businesses. You know, the covers of the VHS or DVDs really, in a lot of ways, is what made our movies do better than other companies. You know, did we have the better action film than the next guy? No. No. (laughs) Did we have a better cover than the next? Yes. Yeah. So it was just your power of observation. Mm -hmm. Putting yourself in the shoes of what do I want to see? What do I like? What's interesting? What grabs my eye? And then implementing that. Right. And it was interesting. The first um, home entertainment company that I ran, Academy Entertainment, the year before I ran, took over that company, I ran a retail store in Burlington. Vermont. Attractions. Attractions. Going in, going out. Who wrote that song? I did. <laughs> I was like six years old, five years old. So I ran a retail store that rented videos. I could see what people were renting, what they liked, what you know, what what sold and what didn't, what rented and what did not rent. So when I took over Academy, I had that knowledge. That is the building where downtown Burlington Ben and Jerry's is now. Mm -hmm. So attractions, you made that store successful because you just were following the inspiration of what was working and doing more of that. That store is successful because of my time running the retail stores in Boston. The beginning of taking over Academy, what I think made that so successful was my experience in the retail store and watching behavior of people. 
know, why they rented. And I noticed they rented because of how the cover came across. You know, look, everyone heard of Mission Impossible and the big movies, Scent of a Woman. You know the big movies. You know Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise and Al Pacino. You could just put the name of the movie on the cover and people will rent it. But back in the day, there were only a certain number of Mission Impossibles on the shelf. They got rented right away. Then there are all the movies that you never really heard of. And the only reason you would pick it up is because you're looking at the cover, you pick it up, you read about it, you look at the pictures on the back. So I realized you have to have a great cover. If you don't have the materials that when you buy the movie to distribute it, if the materials don't come with that movie that can make a great cover, you got to go out and do a photo shoot. They did photo shoots back then. The studios did photo shoots. A lot of the independents, they just took the materials, the pictures that came with the movie and made a cover out of it. I said, no, no, no. The pictures aren't good enough quality to make it look like a studio picture. I would organize a photo shoot and I had photographers in LA and photographers in New York City. And so most of the actors lived on one of the coasts. We would do photo shoots and that really, you know. Grove Pashley. He was one of the photographers in LA. Really kind of the secret to my success in the beginning where it was all about video stores before streaming and even cable became so popular. So what was the accolade that you earned? Were you like the guy to go to for for independent films if you want to have it be successful? Was that what ended up happening? Each company had definitely was a successful financially and whether it was Academy or Apex or Screen Media, you know, we were known that we could distribute an independent film. Well, and they, if they didn't know it, they found out later. You know, sometimes it got in the way of closing on a film because in the contract, it would say we're responsible for making the poster and the cover and we have the right to change the title. If we don't think the title of the film that they pick is going to sell, we have the right to change the title and we have the right to put on whatever cover we see fit like you have final say yeah and people didn't want they didn't want to give their baby away sometimes they didn't and that could be a deal breaker especially if i didn't like the title or if i didn't trust their judgment in making a cover for this film it would kill the deal i got I don't want it. I, I either have to be able to do what I want to sell this film or we're not taking it on. And did you sometimes have big name actors, you know, Patrick Swayze, someone like that say, hey, we're going to work together on this? You know, when you have bigger names, sometimes you have to make uh, adjustments or exceptions to the rule because you want to keep them happy because if you have a movie with Patrick Swayze or Kevin Bacon, Robin Wright or Keanu Reeves. And, you know, if you have a name in your movie, you want them to help you promote the picture. Yeah. So you don't want to do something that they're going to say, I hate that cover. Yeah. I mean, Patrick Swayze was very involved, very involved in, in doing the cover. Matter of fact, he would call it all hours of the night to say, can you move that dress over just a little bit? Can you make that a little brighter? I mean, but so especially with the big name, you you, you work with them. You want to keep them happy. Yeah. So ultimately, you figured out a formula that worked, that was successful. And then also your relationships as the distributor with... The movies went out in several ways. Home video, you have to have a relationship with the retailers, Blockbuster, Hollywood Entertainment, on and on. Your movies would go to cable. You needed a relationship with HBO and Showtime and Stars, And then as time progressed, you needed a relationship with Netflix and Amazon. So you needed a relationship with the end users. Yeah. So you nurtured those relationships so you can make good deals with them 
And so people knew that like, hey, I already have this relationship with Netflix because me and Bob are friends and like, we're going to get this many <laughs> units sold and whatever. Me and Robert are friends? <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't his name Bob? Who's Bob? The Netflix guy at the time? I don't remember Bob. Aronson? I don't think he was at Netflix. Oh. I don't know where he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you, you had to know your customers. And your customers could be anyone from the Air Force naval bases that bought movies to, like I said, to an HBO or, or to a movie theater chain. You wanted to get your movies into a chain. Actually, then I would rely on somebody else who already had the relationships. Someone like Richard Abramowitz, who already had the relationships with the movie theater chain. They I'm could- just remembering you and your business partner, Suzanne Black, at the time, did this whole Sunny and share routine one time. Okay, well, right. For a long time, for one of the companies, Screen Media, through, we were fortunate enough to put our films out through a studio, and it was Universal Studio. So they already had a sales force of whatever, 40 people out there covering the country. So they took our movies on and they would sell our movies. So now instead of selling it to distributors and retailers all around the country, we just had to educate the universal sales force. So what Suzanne and I would do, they would have conferences every quarter. Universal would have conferences to tell their salespeople about their movies. And, you know, I mean, it was pretty dry stuff. You would think for a movie studio, they'd figure out a way to liven it up and bring in some of the actors you know, bring in uh, the guys from Hangover and have them talk, but they didn't do that. You know, they were more focused on the theater chains, making sure that the movies did well at box office. Home entertainment, home video was kind of a second thought to the studios. But for me, it was the first platform in a lot of ways for many of the movies that I put out. So Suzanne and I, when we went in to pitch the Universal Studio guys on our films, we would get creative. We'd want to hold their attention. We want them to want to sell our films. So one time we presented our films as Sonny and Cher. One time we presented- And did you sang, right? Sang. We changed the words to You Got Me, Babe, and popular songs that they did. We changed the words so that- that we were selling our movies as we were singing the song. <laughs> you gave them a show. That's great. We put on a show. We did. We came as the Beverly Hillbillies. I was Jed Clampett and Suzanne. Everyone thought Suzanne should have been Ellie Mae, which was the you know beautiful daughter. But Suzanne wanted to be Granny. <laughs> There was a Saturday Night Live, Will Farrell and um, Sherry O'Terry. Yeah. They were the cheerleaders. cheerleaders. We went as the cheerleaders once. We uh, we put on a show. And as a matter of fact, the funny story of how did we get Universal Studios? Well, actually, USA first took on our product. USA Entertainment got bought out by Universal. Universal Home Entertainment at the time said, look, we can't carry your product. Your, your films are too small for us. You're going to have to leave. I'll put out one more set and then you guys are gone. Universal distributed one of our movies, two of our movies. One was Alicia Silverstone and one was Chili Dogs with uh, Leslie Nielsen. I remember that. These films on home video did better than some of the Universal films. So the head of Universal called in their head of sales and head of marketing and said, what's the story? How did these screen media films do better? Yeah, why did they do better? And the guy said, you know what? They're quicker. They think on their feet. They price it right. Their covers are fantastic. They said, you know, what can I tell you? They just they just do a great job. I'm looking at the numbers. <laughs> 
<laughs> the guy, the guy who was heading Universal Home Entertainment, I remember he called me. It was the day before Yom Kippur. And he said, um, look, I'm going to be in New York next week. I'll be at the Four Seasons. Meet me there one o'clock on Thursday. I said, OK, I'll be there. I go there and he's kind of, you know, he's kind of a little embarrassed that he has to backtrack from saying, get out of here. Right. Hey, we'll take you on. And he said, "Okay, this is here. Here's the deal. Blah 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 blah. If you can do this, we have a deal, and we'll sell your product." Okay, we got a deal. Universal carried our movies for years. Yeah, I remember that. Good. Well, this is a good natural place to stop. I just do have so much more. I'd love to, you know, ask you about your relationships with actors and your stories with the actors because that's so much fun is hearing Mm -hmm. about some of the fun stuff you got to do and some of the more of the fun stories if you want to next time. So feel free to send us an encouraging word if you'd like to hear more of the fun celebrity artist stories with Robert Baruch and all the wonderful people that he's gotten to know over the years. Thank you so much for, you know, it takes a lot of courage and I really want to acknowledge the courage that it takes to, first of all, lay down and like, and just breathe because most people are not willing to do that. They don't want to take the time. They don't want to feel their feelings. They don't want to be with themselves. They don't want to stop. Getting into your history and like how you've grown and all these sort of discoveries that you made, like that takes courage. So I appreciate you being willing to take the time and the authenticity and honesty that you had, you know, so that I could share with the people that are wanting to listen about your journey and what you've learned. And I think it's a fascinating story of healing and spirituality and entertainment and Hollywood. And that's really what my podcast here is about is how does healing meet Hollywood? So this is, you're the perfect person to talk about all this and there's so much for you to share so i'm hoping that i can get you to come on again but for now i'm just wanting to give you so much gratitude and share so much gratitude for you sharing so much that you shared and just know that i love you and i appreciate you so thank you dad it was a lot of fun thank you you're welcome thank you you do a great job interviewing you're really quite natural and in tune and intuitive Hmm. Thanks. Learn from the best. (laughs) Hey, you got through that podcast. Way to go. Did you get something out of it? Did it touch your heart in one way or another? Did it expand your ideas? Did it make you feel a little bit more creative? I'd love to hear your responses and reactions to this Siri at sageandblushwellness.com. Feel free to reach out. Seriously, I want to hear from you. Also, if you have ideas about who I should interview, maybe it's you, maybe it's a friend you know, someone that's a mentor, someone you think is really interesting and that's voice needs to be heard. If you're looking for support or know someone who's looking for support in any of the various ways that Sage and Blush Wellness offers support, please feel free to share through text, through social media. Sage and Blush Wellness offers so many different ways of support check it out. I look forward to hearing from you. Have a beautiful rest of your day and remember you are enough right here just as you are.